Kia ora and welcome to CircuitCast, Artists in Conversation. My name is Thomason Slay and I'm just stepping in for Mark Amory who is currently away on holiday. So I'm joined today on a grey uh, Wellington morning by Marie Shannon. Hi Thomason. <laughs> and uh, the art writer and also artist Megan Dunn. Hi. Welcome to you both. Great to be here with you. And so Marie Shannon has been creating delicate, intimate and thoughtful works for over 30 years. While her immediate domestic surrounds have remained her primary concern, her work has at times addressed the artwork of others as a way to investigate the creative process. We're here at the Adam Art Gallery where Marie has recently opened her show which is entitled Rooms Found Only in the Home, which has been developed and toured by the Dunedin Public Art Gallery where it previously showed. And the exhibition features over 30 years of photographs, video and sculpture. So um, to kick things off, Marie, <laughs> as you're about to reach for a, cup, a drink of coffee. <laughs> That's OK. <actually. laughs> um, I wondered a little bit about what this process of bringing out a lot of works that are now nearly 30 years old and bringing all this material together, what this has been like for you in working with the DPAG and the Adam. It, yeah, it, it's been really interesting. And um, it's been interesting to see how there have been really consistent threads through the work. But it also has been really confronting. And I was terribly afraid when this was um, first proposed by um, Lucy and Lauren at um, Dunedin Public Art Gallery that everything would just look so stupid that I wouldn't want to um, I wouldn't want to look at it and I wouldn't want to deal with it. But in fact, I think it looks okay. I have to keep saying to myself, I it think looks we can right. safely say it's much more than okay, Marie, <laughs> having just had a look at the show this morning. It's really fantastic. So oh, you thank should, you. Yeah, it looks great. Yeah. But it's, yeah, um, it's hard. It's really hard to look at. Um, to look at old things, yeah, but yeah. they are out in the world, and so these are the work goes back to art school. The first, um, the first work in the show is um, from 1982, and it wasn't something that I kind of put out there or exhibited, but it was something that a few years ago, when I was making the video, the decisive moment, I started looking through my old art school large format negatives and scanning some and seeing possibilities in some that I had kind of overlooked at the time. And the work, I think it's called House 1982, we kind of gave it, a, a, that's what it's called, yeah. yeah. Um, and it's a diptych from the kind of the front porch of the house where I live, looking oh, yeah. across the street at our neighbour's house, which was a very generic um, suburban brick house. It's like an artist's nightmare house, isn't it? It kind of is. Like um, you look at it and you think, no. Yeah, but at the same time, there's there's something. I mean, I, I suppose in a lot of ways people mm. think that the way I look at these things is purely ironic, but it's kind of not because I think, no, but I mm. kind of think, well, in a way, yes. Um, because it is, I mean, you know, if you take away the drapey curtains and stuff, it's so solid and so generic and so safe looking. Yeah. I guess I just think that that idea that the suburbs was something that artists are typically running away from. Well, yes. And, and it's a suburban view. Oh, yes, it's, it's totally suburban. But I, um, I didn't have, I'd, in a way, I mean, it's not that I loved the suburbs and it's not that I didn't view them without irony. 
Mm. That right? Um, but at the same time, I kind of thought, well, we're all in the suburbs, mm. you know, and, and let's just kind of own it. Yeah. And we are suburban. And, mm. you know, like most of all the kids I went to art school with were suburban, no matter how much they were being bohemian or whatever. You know, mm. they were, I, you know, I always say, I you know, never met so many sons and daughters of doctors and lawyers in my life as in my first year at art school. Wow. Um, mm. Which was, you know, not a, a milieu that I was used to moving in. We yeah. were, you know, like, you know, not quite, mm. you know. Anyway, uh, <laughs> um, so I kind of, I quite liked to to own up to the suburbs sure. in ways that were not fashionable at the time. Yeah. Which was why I guess the work was always read with more more irony than there was. I think, you know, irony is just such an unfashionable term right now and I think we should just create a safe space for the word irony because it's actually just because something is ironic doesn't mean it's just ironic. Like no, it, that's It's right. just a number of positions that can mm. be moved through. Yeah. I mean, what interests me about some of the, the writing about your work, there's often this talk about it being fundamentally personal or personal, yet there's a kind of, to me, there's a detachment that plays the whole way through it as well, and I was interested in that early work because I, I, when I looked around the show, I said to Stephen, is that Marie's house? And then I realised your house was the house in shadow, mm-hmm. just, just yes. looking over to the road, and there's quite an ominous kind of quality you know a weird detachment to that view yeah yeah and yeah and and in fact the house that 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 I was living in that I grew up in was the antithesis of the house across Mm. the road but we can't see it but we can't see it Mm. and um so I was kind of looking at this really generic house while not being in a really generic house myself and I did use the interior of that house in in other things, but okay. you never do get to see quite all of it. Um, but yes, and and I suppose that is the being in it, but it being outside it at the same time. Mm. Um, that I think you can do. You can you can be ironic and knowing about something without being totally on the outside of it. Mm. You know, you can play both those things at once. Yeah. So you you can't be completely... You can be ironic and knowing about something without being completely dismissive. Mm. You know, you have to say, well, this is actually where I am and I'm not really doing anything about it. So, mm. you know, I can't be that ironic. Well, it's, it's humour too, isn't it? I like that David Sedaris quote, the opposite of funny isn't serious it's not funny (laughs) you know like it's uh, there's something about people who use humor in their work Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. you're using it but it doesn't mean the work's a joke like that strange fractious relationship between humor and a punchline and then is Mm. the work a punchline (laughs) yeah exactly I wanted to ask you you know, are you into reality TV? I, you know, I thought your work was quite prescient. The bloopers works. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm kind of not because I don't have, I don't really sustain TV watching. Oh. And, um, I mean, every now and then, I, I, no, I can't honestly say that I am. Okay, <laughs> well, I, I do. I try sometimes, but, but then, um, I, I did watch. There's this weird Australian one, which was something about being married and not married like they swapped like it was uh, something about seven wife years. swap well I don't I, it, was, it was weird and I was so horrified by the idea that I watched it yeah and I got more involved than I should have been so I had to stop <laughs> <laughs> but yeah they basically they swapped partners um yeah. because they were grumpy with each other mm. 
and then they got grumpy with the people they ended mm. up with. Oh, God, it was just too horrible. Um, it was actually one of the sort of connecting things that I thought about mm. in relation to some of your writing, Megan, and some of your, your art, Marie, was this idea of um, kind of uh, poking fun at and sort of questioning the art world as a sort of construct. Mm. And I have, um, I don't know if you have read it, Marie, but uh, Megan wrote this great essay called The Submerging Artist, which is sort of um, about Elam in the in the 90s and um, your time there and your time afterwards and I'm going to do that sort of uh, slightly awkward thing where I'm going to read a section of it back to mm. you. Um, so you wrote, most of the students currently at art school reading Deleuze and Foucault for the first time, sitting at desks and staring at white walls, concocting installations out of beer cans, pipe cleaners, aluminium doors <laughs> and opaque shower curtains. These students now loitering in hallways, discussing post-internet art and rushing headlong into the moments of life, will in time no longer be practicing artists. Life's tough, get a haircut and get a job. All the cliches come home to roost on this fact. Does this mean they aren't good enough? Does it mean they don't want it enough? Does it mean they're not real artists? The majority, the 99%, will submerge. Um, and I just wondered if you, maybe Marie, could talk a little bit about your time at, at Elam and how that affected your work um, uh, post-graduating. Post um, yes, I, I did read that and I thought it was, yeah, I thought it was really good. And <laughs> yeah, and it just talks about how really difficult it is and you know not everyone who starts out mm -hmm. in fact not everyone who starts out at art school actually wants to be an artist mm, true yeah. um you know maybe they use that time to be in that milieu and decide what it is that they mm, want to do mm. uh, and I think that's totally fine um but I loved being at art school and I was seriously um not ambitious and not a particularly good art student mm. even um I, I really took a long time to figure out what it is that I wanted to do, and um, and meanwhile, as I as I say in the slightly instructional video, the decisive moment, mm -hmm. um, which poses as a sort of photography one hundred and one lecture and turns into a slightly disaffected memoir, um, <laughs> cunning, cunningly Beautifully described, <laughs> yeah, cun cunningly. You know, you think you're here for instruction and you're taking notes and you're learning how to yeah. use your camera. And, oh, what? Um, but I it. You know, we were very much in the um, the mode of decisive moment photography. In, in photography, yeah. I didn't go into art school thinking I wanted to do photography. I went into art school thinking I wanted to go to art school. Yeah. Um, and, you know, whatever happened would happen. And I just sort of bumbled along slightly ineffectually. And I was interested in photography, um, but I just really just the decisive moment was my life wasn't active enough. It, there weren't enough people in my life to create decisive moments. And, um, you know, as an 18-year-old kid living in the suburbs or walking around a city that's pretty much deserted, you don't, you can't disappear in the way that, you know, good decisive mm. moment photographers can disappear in a mm. crowd or disappear in a city where no one cares about them. You know, people, you go out, you know, and as a, you know, person and we know in 1978 with a camera you'd always get some man coming up and wanting to know what sort of lens you had on that oh, <laughs> yeah, interesting. no freaking idea what sort of lens I had on it and nor did yeah. I want to talk to anyone about, about lenses yeah. Yeah. but you you it would like I used to say to Yvonne Todd when yeah. you know because eventually I moved to using a large format camera even worse mm. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely, even worse. Infallible mm. man magnet. Yeah, and interesting. A large format camera. Mm. And and Yvonne Todd had yeah. this um, situation where she was way out on the mudflats in Cox's Bay, 
and a man parked his car <laughs> and I, I'm pretty sure, this is her story and I might be telling it wrong, stepped gingerly across the mud flat just to ask her what sort of lens she had on that Wow. Panel. Oh my goodness. So, yeah. I do remember her saying she had a lot of people who photograph roses getting in touch with her after the Walters and, you know, like camera club, yeah, tiki, yeah. you yeah. know, conversations. Oh, that's fascinating. It's kind of interesting to think about that. Um, yeah. I was reading the catalogue for imposing narratives, you know, a group yes. show that you were in of photography at City Gallery Wellington that kind of looks at, at that stage stepping away from the decisive moment. Yes. And, you know, that made me think, well, how long had the pho photography department been going at Elam when you came into it? Not very long. Mm. And the, the thing was, I totally understood their position. Um, and it was run by John Turner and Tom Hutchins. And they were they had to fight very, very hard for the establishment of it. Mm, yeah. And for the establishment of a photography department that dealt with serious photography, as opposed to camera club, as opposed to pictorialism and here came these you know stupid young women several you know years later <laughs> and sort of you know stepped on all their hard work with our silly high heels and mm. and sort of went well, we don't want to go outside without cameras because people come and talk to us we want to just sit in our rooms and make shit and photograph it and yeah we don't want to talk to people and we don't want to be out in the world yeah and so they must have been very cross yeah. <laughs> and, and in a way constructed photography. You know, it verged on pictorialism, which mm. was the antithesis of what they'd built up so, so hard and fought for so hard to have yeah. photography taken seriously. Mm. So, yeah, we were difficult children. Yeah, I guess that um, that idea of the decisive moment sort of model of photography, it's sort of predicated on the idea that public space is sort of the same for everyone in a way, that you yes, can inhabit it at the same, yeah, like a sort of flanery type. Yeah. But um, as you say, Karanga Happy Road is not the same as like the Champs-Élysées or whatever, you know, it's a different place, a different time, you know, it doesn't create the same work in a way from that no. from that site. Yeah. No, it doesn't. And I think what people mm. people did in New Zealand was that they would they would visit other lives, they would, or they mm. would visit other situations, you know, like Glenn Jowett did a lot of series where he looked at very specific workplaces or very specific areas of interest, like mm. the races. And so yeah. he, he would go somewhere where there were crowds, where there were things happening that were kind of probably outside his own life. So there was a kind of, you know, the back end of sports or the back end of horse racing or, yeah. you know, gangs were a big favourite. You know, mm. clearly wasn't going to do that. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, there's only... You have to be a certain sort of person to put yourself in certain mm. kinds of places. Yeah. And um, for young women, you'd be pretty stupid to try and do that. Yeah. In a, you know, in the 70s or whenever. Yeah. When did you... Yeah, I wanted to ask you when you started the pipe cleaners and how that came about. Um, I... I kind of wanted to make something that was so clearly verging on well-made, badly made. Mm. Like it had a lot of attention paid to it, but it was never ultimately going to be well-made. Mm. Um, it was never going to have a level of craft or a level of finish. So it was kind of the self-limiting thing ah, as an object. Yeah. Um, like the house at night, which is the most mm. proficient model, mm. you can see big bits of sellotape with the 
tiny zigzaggy serrated mm. edge on them, which I deliberately put them on the front of the model, not the back of the model, mm. because I wanted to play with that um, being able to see how something was made, being able to see the ultimate crappiness of something, but also to have it as a believable reality. And there was something about... There was discussion at the time. People said, well, why don't you show the models? And I said, because oh, they're made right. to be photographed. And what I wanted to use was the kind of seriousness of photography, the kind of serious layer over yeah. top of something that's kind of crappy and allows itself to be crappy. Yeah. And in a way, it's sort of like photographing something completes the fiction and it makes it look a bit better and it makes it look a bit more serious and considered and it makes it look smoother. Yeah. As opposed, so so it sort of has the crappy thing and the 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 finished kind of um, the more crafted presentation of it as a photograph. That's lovely. Completes the fiction because there's yeah, that nice yeah. quote of yours about you wanting your works to be considered as narratives and read left to right and you know mm, across. Mm. I'm not I'm paraphrasing there. Oh, and I think, like, they're so bedded in now that I can't believe anyone ever asked you why you didn't show the models. Yeah, you yeah. Know, so that shows how far they've come into our, our canon and our consciousness. There's one work that's not in the show called The Pursuit of Coziness. Yes. You know, do you, do you think that's something you have been in pursuit of? I've been so in pursuit of. <laughs> I really um, was attracted to the title of that. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of well. stupid in a way, but it was deliberately stupid. It was, but it's about having low ambitions. You know, yeah. it's about having or you know, easily met needs. You yeah. Know? Um, it's about because I, you know, I really believed that no matter how hard ass everyone was pretending to be mm. out in the world, they secretly just wanted a big duvet and a cat. Mm. Yeah. You know, just you know, go home. Kick off those stilettos, you know. Yeah. Whatever. Not that I spent my life in stilettos. And then you made the felt, the felt slippers, didn't you? At one point. Yeah, they were. They were more about. They weren't really about things to wear. Mm. Although Julian insisted on having a pair, and they were quite good. They were sort of Japanese looking. Good. They collected Mm. a heck of a lot of dust on the bottoms of them. (laughs) That that was totally fine. but that was more about the process of making and documenting the process of yeah. making. So those resulted in quite schematic photographs yes. that were about a, a process of designing, cutting, and layer and by making. layer. Yeah, mm. yeah. So they're kind of a different, a different thing. Mm. I actually wanted to ask you both mm. um, how you felt about revealing sort of intimacies about yourself in your work, mm. and um, whether that's something that drives you, as you're just kind of a sort of subsidiary of the process of making work. Both in your writing, Megan, I think, and in the exhibition, Marie. Yeah, it's, um, you know, there's always the the, um, thinking you might have gone too far, but I think what I, what, what, a kind of rule that I have is to, in some ways, to disclose things without being overly revealing or to, to say something that's quite powerful but in a very stepped away from way, mm-hmm. in a very neutral way. So I've, I suppose particularly with um, with the video works, yeah. being able to present material that's inherently comes from a very emotional situation mm. but it's described in a quite a flat way. Mm. So there's that, that balance between how what you're expressing and how you're expressing it mm. so it's not over overloaded yeah mm. um, I had a little phrase for it because I'm working with a student who's also um, 
interested in revealing stuff, but pretty much without being Tracy Emin, without still being in the kind of emotional turmoil. So yeah. it's, re- it's, it's presenting stuff, but not in an emotional way. Yeah. Mm. I think, you know... Recently, having published a, a book about myself, <laughs> I, I've been surprised by the amount of people who've read it. And, like, I was surprised. Yeah, I to said have... I'd read it. You, you seemed surprised. <laughs> yeah, I have been. It's great. And I was picking Fern up from daycare one day, and then a mum said to me, Yeah, I've read your book. And that just blew my mind. And then she was like, I feel like you know, I really enjoyed it, but now I feel like I know too much about you. And then I had to kind of think about, oh, yes, I suppose I can imagine how someone would feel that way. Yet for me, there's still a performance that's happening, Mm. a performance of tone. It's one that I can't really get away from. Like, it fits me, it works for me, and that's why I do it. Like, if I could write the luminaries, I bloody well would. If I could do something else, I would, you know, but I can't. Mm. (laughs) But I think you do that very well, so you should, yeah. (laughs) But at the same time, I'm, um, you know, there's a whole lot that isn't in it. In a way, for me, having written Tinderbox recently, the, the structure is so, is such a conceit that it almost feels like the most artificial thing I've ever made, even though it's all true. (laughs) Yeah, and it sort of connects to, Maria, what you were saying about the construct of the the model and then another layer of the photograph on top Mm. of that. Those are two editing processes that kind of remove you twice, I guess, from the the end work. Yeah, Yeah. and and there's a lot of editing because, yes, there's there's so much. You you appear to present quite a lot of yourself, Mm. and I'm, you know, talking about in in your work, but... Of course you're not presenting everything mm. and of course you're editing it and you're you're choosing what to say and you're choosing how to say it mm. and you're withholding an enormous amount but I think the and it's not it's not a trick but the the craft is to you know to to make it feel and and it is real mm. but it's also very carefully edited and yeah. very carefully considered and I suppose you want times when <laughs> You know, you're using a manner of address, and I suppose I mean me, but also some of Marie's work. Like, I loved the way that lines in the videos start to occupy this weird transpersonal space where, you know, it's a specific speaker, but then it feels like it's me speaking it or imagining I'm speaking it, or then it feels like it's a third person, someone removed. Uh, I like the way you can move in and out of this kind of feeling of specificity and universality. And, uh, Mm. like, one thing I got to in my reviewing is, uh, this is by no means uncommon, but starting to speak speak directly to the reader like and and some people have told me with tinderbox it feels like someone's sitting Mm. there in the room telling them something you know that mode works for me and I don't know if it comes I think it does play into all of these standard tropes of woman and autobiography and I guess I'm interested to know where I think you play with these quite knowingly in your work Marie and I wonder if you've ever felt constrained by it you know by being the woman, you know, riffing on domesticity. Yeah, and and in a way I think it's just such a big cliché. Yeah. Mm. You know, and if you say that's what you do, you can sort of just see this thought bubble coming up above someone's head going, (laughs) oh, yeah, and and sort of imagining what that might be. Um, But, yeah, but then I just think, okay, well, it is is where I work. Yeah. And, you know, whether it's from 
laziness about leaving the house or <laughs> um, I don't think it really is but you know it, it is that that I kind of at first it was quite funny to be working in that sphere when it was so not what you were supposed to be doing you know you yeah. were supposed to be going out and showing people the you know being a, a tour guide to the world yeah. or whatever and I just thought that was so ridiculous yeah. to try and do that that I thought I'd do the opposite mm. and so it was sheer perversity yeah and then it was let's see if we can make this meaningful let's see if we can make this interesting mm. let's see if we can make other people admit to having these mundane desires and pleasures mm. so it it was kind of um subversive in a very mild way which mm. was bringing bringing the conversation into the stuff that people don't bother talking about. Mm. But I think there is also the, the, the idea of specificity is really important. And for me, the idea of specificity in writing, not, mm. not things I write about so much, but when I, when I read, I love specificity. Mm. I love street names of cities I'll never visit. I don't care that I don't know where they are. I, need, I, I'm, I now feel like I know these places. Mm. And there was this strange thing that apparently, you know, sometimes books that are very specifically New Zealand yeah. authors are told, "Oh, don't, don't, yeah. don't say Wellington. Yeah. Say some other, you know, silly, non-specific name that'll make it seem universal." I, I think that's unbelievably bad advice. Yeah, you know, I think we we can all we're not thrown by specificity. Mm. You know, specificity adds detail and richness to something that you're reading and of course we have the ability to take something bigger from that mm. I think that sort of connects to what you were saying before Megan about specificity and universality yes exactly yeah it's like the specific is universal in of a way, course because yeah. and that's where that that friction of acknowledgement where you see yourself in someone else's experience is the thing the fire in a way that lights the work yeah. yeah or you can imagine yourself in a new place or you're interested in a new place and it does yeah and it it yeah I think I think to be very specific is to kind of unlock that possibility for it being universal or for for it to touch people in a wider way okay this is specific I have to ask you what is your stance on Peter Perrier I love Peter Perry. Are you good friends? Yeah. Did the works come yeah. about through that? But it seems as though I have some stalker obsession <laughs> with him. It's not that profound. But I just found, you know, those couple of, you yeah. know, I had a dream of about yeah. Peter, a Peter Perry photograph of three glasses. And for and some reason, I, I could see. You really I, had this dream. I'd, absolutely. Okay. I wouldn't like it. If you're talking about dreams, why bother to make them up? Yeah, you know, okay. They're, they're, yeah. The they're thing, pretty weird to start with. Yeah, they're yeah. pretty weird to start with. But the, the thing the thing about that work, and I'll just yeah. sort of preface that work a little bit, um, was when, when I started thinking about the hypothetical artworks, mm, the artworks yes. that I would describe rather than do, Yeah. and this is the idea of being a performance artist and doing this thing, or... The buskers, the yeah, map being of buskers. Yeah, video artist and doing yeah. this thing, and then as soon as you start, it's like any idea, as soon as you start stepping through, how am I going to do this, yeah. you get tired and, you know... Yeah decide not to do it and then I kind of thought well why not why not use the potential of these things and and use the things that you don't do but you had you know just get some credit for your ideas just yeah. talk about the ideas mm. and 
I was also working with the ideas of dreams, and there were two categories of those. There were dreams that artists had Mm. and dreams I had about art or artists. Mm. And because I was, you know, I had a lot of friends who were artists. Mm. Julian had a lot of, a big circle of artists. And so I did dream a lot about artists. Mm. And then there were certain artists where I could see their work really, really clearly. Mm. And there was something about Peter Perry's photographs that... I could see them clearly, and I could see them in front of me. And so sometimes in these dreams, I had to take a photograph for him, or I dreamed about a photograph mm. he'd taken, but they appeared to me very, very clearly. Mm. And I was I had another very specific dream about um, a drawing that another artist who usually does painting, and this was maybe 20 years ago, 15 years ago, an artist who usually paints, I had a dream about a drawing that she'd done. And it was this most amazingly detailed drawing of a crowded room Mm -hmm. of people. It was like at a party or something. And I was so excited by it. And it was such a great drawing that I told her about it in a way that suggested she should actually do this. (laughs) And I just, I couldn't help it. I realized it was a really bad thing to do. And um, of course, she had no desire to carry out this drawing <laughs> do you believe in dreams do you believe they're, they're messages no I, I well I believe they're processing but mm. I believe they're entertainment mm. you know, they're, they're nighttime entertainment mm. I suppose ideas uh, you know those works I was going to they're kind of these future yeah. tense works but then you know that they're never going to happen yeah the hypothetical artworks that's interesting um, ideas become kind of silly putty like the margarine mm. you know yeah. the creative process they're slippery they can melt you need the right quality yes. you know to be able to proceed with yeah, yeah, yeah. Just for someone like me who knows very little about photography, how are those, ex- like, what are they written in, you know, those I was going to dot, 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 um, works, the, that series? The works where the text is mm. white, mm. that's written on the negative. Okay. So the negatives are 4 by 5 inches or 10 by 12 centimetres, so they're quite big. Yeah. They're, you know, almost postcard size. Yeah. And so I just wrote very carefully in a very nice, sharp archival pen. Okay. And then because that's – and it doesn't matter what colour it is, as it happened, it was black. Yeah. But it prints as white because it adds maximum density. Okay. And then in other cases, I simply wrote on a piece of cardboard, which I, you know, loved the, the texture of. Yeah. And they were photographed, so you saw the cardboard texture as mm. well as the texture of the writing. So sometimes I simply wrote something down and photographed it mm. as writing. Mm. Other times I would um, – take a background photograph of something kind of, you know, atmospheric like clouds or water or something that was a little bit universal or, a mm. bit, you know, quite and a nice tonal background, nice tonal gradation. And that also then that the white lettering would show up mm. on. I suppose after reading those couple about Peter Perrier, then I started to think, oh, well, then as map of place, map of the places... The potting mix, New Zealand oh, on yes. the carpet. Is that yeah, that's autobiographical? <laughs> is that like you know, Peria has that shot of oh, New Zealand from above. No, yeah, I totally stole the idea from him. Yeah, you did. totally, okay, totally okay. did. Yeah. yeah, I thought this can't yeah. be coincidence. No, now no, that no, I'm no. That wasn't. That was based on that. Was very pre. Okay. Very yeah. Very 
good of you to pick that up. <laughs> yeah, well, it's probably quite obvious, but then, you know, I'm drawing my, you know, I always feel on these occasions I have to say something masterful. And no, it's sitting no, that, outside that like that the really goose was. trying to lay a golden egg or something. No, like that can was I very, do it? very good spotting. <laughs> and then even Palmer's in house, you know, because he's so interested in replicas. You know, like and you know, like small things. Mm. You know, photograph it and yeah, and, and the single or, object, so real. You know, what's yeah. real, what's false, what's a replica. So Palmerson House is that a block that was in the fridge just like that, or did you carve it? Well, or? no, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> uh, that this was also when around the time that I, I was, love that one. Oh, thank you. And and that was kind of something that it wasn't in series or anything. It just yeah. it just happened. But this was when I was also thinking about other people's artworks because from time to time I have made my own replicas of other people's artworks mm, yeah. and, you know, like the Gordon Walters works yes. and things yeah. like mm. that, although that came later. But um, I think House of Parmesan was 1991 and I was making dinner and I had a block of Parmesan and I grated one side and I grated the other side. And then I said, I said to Julian, hey, come and look, I've made a little Paul Cullen house. <laughs> <laughs> and I seriously, and because I, I just sat it on the... On the bench, and there, it, there it was, and it just because Paul was making a lot of those really generic mm. house shapes, and so I okay. totally made it by accident, and so then I photographed it, yeah, and then I, I of course gave Paul a photograph. I said, Ah, oh, look what I made, ha ha ha, <laughs> and he said, Um, thank you, <laughs> in his kind way. Hey, I, I wanted to uh, draw another sort of mm. correlation between you two and ask another question. Um, this was about sort of fragments. So I sort of, when I was reading some of your work last night, Megan, and looking at some images online, I saw this kind of idea that both of you are interested in dealing in fragments. So a lot of your mm. essays, mm. Megan, are sort of sections of text, and Marie, your photographs often are spliced together, um, sort of three, mm. the triptych mm. ones. Mm. And I just wanted to question you both kind of what, what sort of appeal there was in that sort of fragmentary approach. Mm. I'd be interested to know what you've got to say about that one, Marie. I oh, think right. I was just thinking you might want to say. <laughs> I can't get away from the fragment. I remember when I was at the University of East Anglia doing my Masters there, having a crit with Michelle Roberts, the mm -hmm. writer, and I was like bemoaning the fragments, which I think is in Submerging Artist. I've got that scene there going, yeah. I write in fragments. <laughs> Why can't I not write in fragments? You know, And uh, her just saying, darling, you've got to embrace it. You've just got to embrace it. And, you know, I think this is probably quite a common but a good piece of advice for students is make the problem part of the subject. Right. And she said that to me then. So that's a line that came through to me in my master's. And I have continued to to work with it because of that. And I think for me, I started out at Elam, you know, chopping up other people's videos. And the process of collage and cut and paste and the jump cut really appeals to me. And I'm also someone who's really been, I've always been really into films. I'd like to think in another heyday, I could have been a great film critic, you know, but I really love films. And, you know, Tinderbox obviously gets deep into someone else's film. And I'm now, you know, researching my mermaid book and that is really finally taking me inside discussing Splash the mermaid film at length which you know I've wanted to do since I was at art school. 
<laughs> so but, so fragments game. for me, I can't get away from them. But yeah. there's still that desire inside for to write the, you know, the great 19th century kind of novel. The luminaries again. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you know, there's still that desire inside to tell a, to tell the straight story. Right. Like even Lynch, he had to make a film called The Straight Story. Yeah. You know, like there's still that desire. You know, I still appreciate that, yeah. that skill in others. Hmm. Um, I think for me, I think in terms of some of the writing I'm doing, because I really don't know how to write, so I write quite small things and I let them be very small episodes, but in terms of those joined, mm. the panorama photographs, mm. um, that, was, that was a way to, to, again, to get away from the decisive moment and to make, or it almost was like a kind of a, a panning across and it was to take away the idea of just looking you know photographs would often ask you just to look at one thing or look mm. in one place mm -hmm. especially if um as i point out in the instructional video the decisive moment that a lot of photographers use very short depths of field to guide your eye so you mm. the foreground's not in focus or the background's not in focus so you just have to look exactly where the photographer has focused and nowhere else and I used to find that very frustrating. And what I aimed to create with those was everything sharp from the foreground to the background. And so the viewer could really look at every detail and every layer of detail if they wanted to. They didn't have to, but the information was available within the image. And in the same way, going from left to right, which might include very peripheral information but it was kind of a pile up of detail mm. so and then things could hide in plain sight if it was some sort of domestic performance mm. or some sort of um you know heightening something that happened um or that something something that had happened or something i was making or something I was doing that then turned into a kind of a mini performance but there'd also be a lot of crap around the edges that right. you could look at if you didn't want to look at the thing that I was asking you to look at. It's yeah. interesting because the head's out of the frame in those and then you always feel I feel like when I look at those that I'm occupying the sitter's headspace that somehow I'm panning out with their viewpoint even mm. though I know that's probably an impossibility of the of the views that surround the figure who's often central. Yeah. Um, and I love about the rat in the lounge. <laughs> I mean, it's such a, you know, like it's such a bewitching image and it's been used a lot. But then when you know the backstory, you know, like any kind of dark psychology is kind of lanced from it mm, when you realise mm. that, you know, it was this fancy dress costume mm. that you went to a party dressed as a rat. Like, if you look at it otherwise, you know, the rat in the lounge. Mm. Well, what are we saying here? Mm. Mm. But actually, like, it's, it's got quite a humorous backdrop to it. Yeah, and it was one of those parties where literally nobody else wore a costume. Yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, I wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like a onesie, like a grey fur onesie no. or anything, because we didn't have, you know, basically I made a mask mm. out of craft paper and I just had a, you know, nice silk skirt on with a grey tail coming yeah. out of it um so you know it was a fairly low-key costume but it was nonetheless a large rat mask <laughs> very difficult to drink I had to drink with a straw I appreciate your commitment for did you wear it for most of the evening at the yes, party I did. Yeah, nice. yeah yeah you were probably the talk of the party yeah yeah I don't know <laughs>
Do we want to do something about travel? Yeah. Always. You know, the travel series. Mm-hmm. And is that really your charm bracelet? It totally is. Okay. So did, you collected these things in all of these places? I did. Okay. Yeah, yeah they're all real. Mm. Yeah. Do you still have it? I do. Do you wear it? Uh, no. It annoys the heck out oh, of me. Because it jangles? It jangles. It's heavy. Every now and then I think I could, I think I could wear it. Um, and I love it. And I, I just... I really love charm bracelets because they were supposed mm. to be really kitchen junky, but yeah. they had so many things on that were so great. Mm. And when I started one, I really decided I wanted it to be about travel. And, you know, there's little ships mm. and there's yeah. lighthouses and there's... The you know, Eiffel there's Tower. The Eiffel Tower. Yeah. But there's a lot of maritime stuff there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, it is... Um, and, yeah, every so often somebody would give me one yeah but that wasn't the point i had to buy them okay you had to buy them in the places yeah so it's quite authentic yeah yeah so it was kind of a task that i set myself that was quite a fun thing to do yeah but yeah i'd love to wear it but yeah i put i put it on sometimes and i just have to take it off again they're not functional are they no decorative yeah, yeah yeah and it's it's just bristling with stuff yeah Did you ever, you know, like it's quite a common thing, the idea of the New Zealand artist wanting, you know, that career abroad. I sense this hasn't been a deep trauma for you. No. No, okay. But there are a few works in there. There are kind of jokes about that. Yeah. Aren't there a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I I love to travel, but I, um, I, I find that I need absolute stability to work mm, and mm. Um, I can't – it takes me a long time to settle Yeah, and then to, to, to then to generate work because places do gener- – you know, I generate work out of places and about sitting still and staring into the corner. I mean, mm. a lot of those works from the 80s were about sitting in the lounge at 30 O'Neill Street, you know, drinking a glass of wine with Mary Louise Brown mm. and just – all by myself, often by myself, just staring at the corner of the ceiling, you know, where the walls mm. met the ceiling and just being in a space and spending time in it and then thinking about it. So it's a very long process. So for me to get settled enough in a place where the place starts to give me some clues about how it might become part of things just takes too long. I really get that sense as well in the photographs of um, where the carpet kind of becomes a landscape and yeah. Yeah. Um, that uh, the work with the New Zealand and also the, I, forget, I don't have the name of it, with, with the the lamp and the, the light. Home and abroad. Home yeah. And abroad yeah. yeah, and it's like the landscape of the interior is mm. very much a mm. presence in those works, yeah. Did you, I was going to ask you, did you play with dolls when you were little? Not substantially. Oh, no, I wasn't. I, I not so much a doll person. Because mm. there's definitely a Sylvanian family touch to some of the work yeah, that I picked yeah, up totally. on. <laughs> yeah, but but the thing about but I've never used mm. toys because toys have their own aesthetic. So yeah. that's why yeah. it was important that I made everything. Okay, that nothing was bought or manufactured because then it has right. It has an aesthetic. Yeah. That a, a lot of people can bring to it, and it's a known thing. Yeah. yeah. So I had to make everything. Mm. Do you enjoy that process then? I quite constru- enjoy making yeah. making things and constructing things. Yeah. 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 I know it's, it kind of sounds silly when I say it, but you know, you enjoy making the. Yeah. The, no, I don't think you could setup. do that if you hated making yeah. stuff. <laughs> yeah. I don't think there'd be a, a 
point. <laughs> I do remember Yvonne saying to me once years ago when she looked at one of my floor collages, I could never do that, she said to me. Whereas I, I mean, you know, more's the pity, I yeah. could never take her photographs. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, you're right. Mm. Like you have to be able to put up with your process, yeah. as it were. Yeah, and I think also you have to have that thinking-making thing. Yeah. Because I do like that, that making process. And photography doesn't have a lot of the making process in, yeah. it, in, in that way, but there's a lot of thinking that goes on just when your hands are doing things with little bits of sellotape. And yeah. that does generate, you know, for, for some of us, that making does generate other ideas. How did you make the stop motion film? Was that lots of fun to do? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was, and I technically it's not, you know, not very polished, shall we say. Um, but yeah, it, it was. It was kind of fun. It took about three weeks. It's oh, wow. it really, uh, you know, I got a bit of metal fatigue in the pipe cleaner figure. I think it's when the foot fell off. From being bent. Yeah. 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 I don't know if I had a, um, a stand-in figure. I think I used the original figure throughout. Right. But, um, yeah, it, it just, it took quite a lot of kind of spatial planning and time planning just to, to work out how to make the movements because it was at 24 frames per second right. and so so you I did a lot of a lot of stepping and a lot of gesturing like how many seconds would it take to reach you know from above your head to yeah. in front of your shoulder and you sort of go 1001 yes so that's 24 frames is the movement from arm up to arm down or whatever so there was a lot of me being the little figure and working out how yeah, much it should take. Yeah. Yeah. And I couldn't help but notice one of your dioramas has an electric heater in it. And then you yeah. know you have the, your work two heaters with the electric heaters outside. Yeah. And I wanted to know what gave you the idea for that. Well, I did love those little two-bar heaters. Yeah, I worst, thought you did. Worst heaters in the world, really. <laughs> yeah, you know, you could efficient. set your dress on fire if you weren't careful, and mm. you, you know. Um, but there was something so generic, but also that little glow. Mm. You know, they they really they, they have don't a fierce glow. Mm. They do have a fierce glow for, mm. for all that they're ineffective. <laughs> um, and I I also loved the the. The futility, you know, this idea of yeah. the, you know, like land art and sculpture, <laughs> and the idea is of, that your land art. It very much is my land art, yeah. and you know, the idea of of, of something futile mm. that's only effective in a very tiny space, trying to work in a very, mm. very large space. Mm. It's quite a beautiful metaphor. Yeah, I think it is. I think there's probably a lot of Wellingtonians or and New Zealanders in drafty freezing houses feeling the the sadness of the very ineffectual tiny heater in their big houses. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. My partner's British and he complains a lot about our heating systems here. Yeah. We well, don't really have them. We've, we've no, only just got them. That's definitely mm. one of his key points. <laughs> yeah. I guess uh, medical portrait. Yeah. Tell me about that. Um that yeah that's that's kind of an oddity um it, it that was a that was an artifact of julian's illness yeah. and i i sort of felt funny about cuz in a way it's it's kind of it's obvious but it was something that he um it was something that he kept mm. and he kept a few artifacts um because he had 
He had melanoma mm. and the primary site was beside his nose and then he had um, secondaries in his lymph gland. So he had, had a what what does the medical term is a radical neck dissection. Mm. And so he had the scar that went from behind his ear to kind of in the, the, the centre of his collarbone. And that was the site of radiation treatment following that first that first secondary surgery. Mm. Um and so, part, so it's actually about it. It sort of turns into this beautiful portrait, and he kept it in mm. the studio as this kind of bust of himself because he was a, at once horrified by what was happening, mm. but fascinated by the medical stuff mm. and the combination of the precision of medical technology and the brutality mm. of it. Because what what happened with that process? Um, was that they made a cast of his head. Mm. And so, you know, it was a sculpture process. So mm. he was participating in the sculptural process. And he had a, a mouthpiece to breathe out of, which is why the mouth is not articulated. Okay. Um, so it was it was about capturing the shape of his head. Right. In order to make a fiberglass mask that fitted his face. Yeah. And down to his shoulders, so that fitted his head and shoulders. And the idea of the fiberglass mask is that he would lie on a bench, have the mask fitted over his head, and it was then drill-screwed into a table to keep his head still so the radiation wouldn't, you know, so he, because if he moved his head during the radiation, radiation to the head and neck is too close to the brain for them to take any oh chances on God. the patient moving. So right. basically they bolt the patient down using a mask. So it's this brutal process, mm. yeah. really brutal process. And um, and yet, he, <laughs> you know, he ended up with the sculpture of himself but that had been made by a medical technician. So yeah. it was this kind of really layered thing for him that mm. he sort of he couldn't help but think was a pretty neat thing to have Very aside from you know aside from the horror of why he had to have it and so I made this triptych portrait called oh, medical portrait yeah and it was the a front on and then a three quarter yeah. side and a three quarter side and I if he hadn't I wouldn't have sort of dug this out from a cupboard or anything to, yeah. to make this um, but it seemed an important thing to do and it went with. Um, the video of what I'm looking at, which right, was to do with yeah. um, cataloguing all of yeah. his things after he died. Yeah. And he had a couple of other things. Like there was also a, a, a lead shape that was laid over the scar, the immediate scar, mm. I think, when something else was happening. So he had all these funny little little pieces of mm. you know, pieces of lead that would get laid on his body to protect them, these funny little shields and things, which I didn't end up photographing because they weren't very meaningful in themselves as shapes without knowing mm. what they were. So yeah, it it was part of that work. It was mm. part of the the show that was looking at looking at the things that mm. you know that he'd left after he died, which is also about what we all leave. Mm. You know, all the stuff that that we have that then becomes the responsibility of another person. Mm. Do you think this will be sort of an ongoing project, Marie? Um, some of the recent works in the show are this kind of archival process photographs and, and videos. Do you think it will continue or are you kind of coming to an end of that? I'm coming to an end of the, the more specific stuff, although there's still a huge amount of material I haven't 
really, really looked at. But I am kind of doing things that are more memoir in the way that the art school anecdote from the decisive moment. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so so little. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, yeah, probably I'm I'm going back further into the past. Um, yeah. And bringing in kind of little anecdotes and memoirs, and I'm I'm working on something that I'm going to be showing mm. at Trish Clark, a video called Car Stories, which is basically a memoir based around every car I've ever, right, not mm. ever driven. Like it doesn't include rental cars and borrowed <laughs> cars, but you know cars mm. that I've been in possession of or in you know ownership oh, of. Cool. So it's a, I think it's about ten, nine or ten cars. Mm. From 1978 to the present. Yeah, okay. So it's just stories around those cars or around those times. Cool. What's, um, I noticed in the Hangover catalogue that you asked yourself the question, what's the dumbest thing you've ever done? Yeah. And when you were talking about the corners of the room before, then that brought me back to you talking about being left in this class by the teacher and then... Oh, no, it was, the, it was her office. Oh. She was the most frightening teacher in the school and I had to have a reading test in her office. But then she went out of the room yeah. for allegedly a long time, a and you ripped time. the corners out yeah. of the book. Yeah, yeah, it was about three and hours. She left me there. <laughs> no, it wasn't. It was probably ten minutes. But you know, like I was six. It's a heck of a long time to be in the office of a really frightening teacher. Could you maybe just repeat this story just for oh, the yes. benefit of our listeners? Terrible but... story. Could you? I can't bear oh, it. Well, <laughs> I was I, I was looking Maria on Trisha's website, mm -hmm. and uh, in the Hangover catalogue, Marie seems to have asked herself a question. And right. Marie's question to herself was, what is the dumbest thing you've ever done? And I thought, you know, Marie's question was interesting. And then she recounts the story of being with the teacher when she's quite young, having to do a test, a reading test. And then the teacher is called away from that situation, and so young Marie is left by herself and, after, and told not to turn the page of the book. Was that what you were told? Yeah, you were given yeah. one instruction, but the instruction, it's like management, the instruction was not specific enough. Right. And her mind found a way around it. And, and then she ended up being left there for so long that she started tearing out all of the corners of the book and then she ate them. The corners of the pages. The, yeah, the corners yeah. of the pages of the book. Yeah, it was, it was her reading. But she'd had it, like, since 1912. Yeah, she'd it had it a long time. It was a special reading book. It was a reading test book. Right. And she left it open at the start of the test. And so what she didn't want me to do was look ahead to see what was in the test. Yeah, that's I right. See, she I wasn't see. meant to okay. look forward. So she said, don't turn the pages. Just sit there, don't turn the pages. Yeah, so you ate the pages. Yeah. <laughs> the mind will always find a way around yeah. things, right? <laughs> you wanted to consume the test in a way or It something. was the most bizarre thing to do. I think I just started touching the book. Yeah. And then that led to... Just playing with the corner. Yeah, yeah, then you... And then, and it was like a tiny... It wasn't like tearing a page. It was like I just removed the did tiniest... Did you No, 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 no. I just, with my fingers, I just removed a tiny corner of one. And then it was like... <laughs> you know, like when you do one wrong thing? Yeah. And yeah. the only thing you can do is keep going? Yeah, yeah, yeah I totally. do. And so then I... You can Another almost see one. yourself doing it in a way, like you're removed from yourself and you can watch yourself. You're like, why am I continuing oh, this? God, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so then I had removed these four corners and I didn't know what to do with this. <laughs> <laughs> Consume the evidence. Yep. Yeah. 
<laughs> but she came back and she spotted it pretty quickly. <laughs> um, I don't know. I suppose I was trying to delve into like, oh, she's asked herself this question to reveal this anecdote and what does this say about her process? But I couldn't quite draw the analogy of what it did say about <laughs> no. Marie's overarching process. One no. thing that just struck me just quickly looking at the show before we were talking was mm. kind of related to that and that in the show, Marie, you're sort of outside and inside you're questioning yourself you're the subject of the photographs you're the archivist but you're sort of subject and quest and questioner at the same time so that you're sort of just in terms of asking yourself a question in that catalogue it's kind of like you're both you're playing both roles you're Mm. sort of through the art in different ways Mm. and sort of network I don't know if that's articulated well but yeah yeah, it's something about selfhood, isn't it? And it's something about the quality of our thoughts. Or there's a, there's a relationship with psychology and pop psychology running through some of the narratives in different ways. And they start, you know, in a seemingly benign way or humorous way with art bloopers or, mm. you know, Marie's tour of Sydney where you could do karaoke <laughs> songs at each yep. stopover. <laughs> and then by the time you're coming to works about Julian and the cataloguing and archiving of someone's presence after they're gone, then there's a different kind of tone and resonance mm, that mm. is being played with in, a, in another way. I found this quote, I, I'd love to know what your favourite piece or your ha- most hated piece of criticism about your work is. I found this from Lara Strongman, she, that you're a sort of womble of the art world. Do you remember <laughs> that one? I kind of had to stop. It, it's something about making things out of stuff left behind. I don't yeah. know, it feels like a reference that could have only happened in the 90s. Like yes. It's dated. Yes, well, see, I never really knew much about the wombles. Yeah, I don't know but much about I think, I think she was <laughs> noting my thrift. And yes, noting, she was. Noting that I like to recycle things yes. and that I you know I could I could make stuff out of things that other people might overlook as material yeah yeah I think yeah. that is where it was going yeah it's just the word it's womble kind, is the meant. stopping point isn't yeah. it it's ki- kindly meant I think yeah, mm. yeah no there are other things that are not so kindly meant not from Lara of course. no no Lara's written about your work yeah. several times yeah mm. yeah, well, yeah like, come on give us one Oh. Well, do you have a pet hate? Do you have a, you know, like something that often is said or a, a, a way the work's taken? Or not really? You're impartial. Um, look, I don't know. I suppose when you deal with domestic, it's easy for it to be seen as comfortable. Mm. Um, and while I don't have a huge problem with that, I, you know, I don't, I don't think the work is about being comfortable. I think mm. it is about just using that location to talk about other things mm. um yeah um so i'm gonna i'm gonna wrap up i don't, haven't written anything down here but i just really like to thank you guys so much for your generosity it was a great discussion and congratulations on the show marie it's, it looks really great and um thank you yeah thanks megan for participating yeah awesome. thank you yeah This episode of Circuit Cast was brought to you with the assistance of Creative New Zealand. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or any of your favourite podcatchers. For more, go to circuit.org.nz.